The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop unrolling your Magic Johnson poster. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 524 with guests Brett Pyatt and Josh Odom, recorded live Monday, January 19, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And now, a man who believes depression is merely anger without enthusiasm, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell with you for the next hour or so. Hey, Richard. Howdy, sir. How are you? Well, you know what's coming up here, don't you? In Vancouver, your neck of the woods. Oh, yeah. There's some, you know, ice skating and stuff. Are you going to go to see the luge? I am not going to go see the luge because that, uh, well, A, it's terrifying, and B, it's up in Whistler, which is bloody hard to get to during the Olympics. Now, and actually, this is show 524, which we're recording a few weeks beforehand. It might We might be in the middle of the Olympics right now. Yeah, pretty much. Should be right in the midst of it. Yeah. But I'm mostly going to hockey games and, and curling, because there's lots of those. Well, plus your family's into curling and stuff. Yeah, that's right. Well, I so, expect that. Although, you know, my, I don't think my wife's going to get to go to any games, because she's volunteering, and I think they got her working every day. Oh, wow. Well, you know, I was going to come up and hang out, but you gave away the uh, guest room, so... Uh, you know, getting a hotel room in Vancouver that week yeah. is going to be ridiculous. Impossible. Impossible. Anyway, let's get into Better Know Framework. <laughs> Better Know Framework is, of course, a little segment we do where I shine a little light on a dark, dingy corner of the .NET framework. Hopefully, over time, you'll pick up a few things and maybe be interested enough to go look in the documentation. Today, mm -hmm. we're talking about iFormatable. I-formatable. I-formatable. And I don't know if I've done this one before. I can't remember, and I don't keep good records, so it's hard for me to figure that out easily. <laughs> but uh, I don't think I did. So I-formatable 
uh, when you implement it, you just have to implement one function, which is two string that takes two parameters. One is a string for the format, and the other is a, an object that implements iFormatProvider. Okay. So the whole idea is that if you want to uh, convert an object to a string representation based on a format string in a format provider, that's what you do. So the standard format strings are are there in the docs. Just look up enumeration format strings. You can also use uh, standard and custom format strings for formatting numeric values uh-huh. and uh, formatting date and time values and that kind of stuff. A format provider returns a formatting object that typically defines the symbols used in converting an object to its string representation. Uh, for example, and I'm reading from the docs here, when you convert a number to a currency value, a format provider defines the currency symbol that appears in the result string. Right. And uh, the framework has system globalization culture info, which returns either a number format info object for numeric values or a date time format info object for date and time values, has a, uh, num- a system globalization number format info and a system globalization date time format info. So there you go. I formatable. If you need it, you'll know it. Yeah, and it's everything you need in there. Learn it, know it, love it, implement it. There it is. Awesome. So who's yakking at us now, Richard? Uh, this is an interesting one because I think it'll spark a little debate between you and I. Oh, really? Uh, because the question is, why adopt new technologies? But that's not really what he talks about. Hmm. Hi, Carl and Richard. First off, you have an amazing show, and I enjoy listening to it tremendously. I only came across your podcast around episode 500, hmm. but I'm slowly backtracking through the shows. That's a lot of backtracking. Yeah, it is. Yeah. While listening to the now famous podcast 476, Is Software Development Too Complex? I have formed the following question. Okay. Since 2003, I have developed my own software, and he puts this in quotes, framework in .NET 1.1. I have built lots of my own stuff for performing workflow, business objects, data layers, authorization, etc., stuff that is now implemented in the .NET 2, 3, 5, and coming in 4. The question is, to be able to support my own framework as long as possible, should I keep my solid proven code in 1.1 running till the end of time, or should I rebuild the apps to consume the functionality of the newer .NET frameworks? Well, you know, now you're running into the problems that you're going to run into when you write your own framework. It's great because that you can do that because you're very talented and smart. Obviously, you know how to, you know how to do the things you need and it can be very efficient for you. However, now you're, you're in maintenance mode. And what do you do? And you, you know, as well as everybody else that maintaining code isn't half as fun as writing it in the first place. Sure. But I think a bigger thing here is, and this is obviously the concern, is membership provider came up in 2.0. Like, there's all this functionality that's now been taken over by the framework. Why are you writing it? Are you going to write your own membership provider? Well, and it sounds like he has, right? Yeah. You know, think about he's got a layer of authorization in 1.1, and now we've got the WIF. We've got the Windows uh, Identity Foundation for 4.0 that, without a doubt, has got to do a better job. It's got well, you to handle know, more functionality. You know, Billy Hollis, who is one of the <coughs> one of our friends and one of the, the, the gurus gurus out there, he was unsatisfied with the data binding stuff in Windows.net in Microsoft.net <laughs> one point one and or no one oh and he wrote his own sort of data binding uh subsystem and used it all the way up until two came. So the whole through one and one point one 
he didn't use da- data bonding right. out of the box. Uh, I think that's right. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember based on our conversations, but it, it was something like that. He used it for a long time, and he shipped a lot of software with it and made a lot of money. So I can't tell people not to do that, but you know, everything's a trade-off. But Billy know? did retire it. And I think of Rocky Lotka and his frame and, and his CSLA always migrating to the new right. uh, .NET framework. And Paul Sheriff does something along those lines. Like the, all the folks that we work with, they all move from version to version and right. offload the code they can offload. Right. So I think the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> you need, you, you can't, and especially 1.1, I would say, like you really can't stay there. At some yeah. point, that is going to become an obstacle to sales. Yep. Without a doubt. And, uh, I didn't mention this fellow's name, but I will now. It's, uh, Jorrit Riedzik, and he's from uh, the Netherlands, and I'm going to ship you a mug, Jorrit. Thank you very much for your email, and if you would like a mug, send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. Our guests today, Richard, are Josh Odom and Brett Pyatt. Josh is the Cloud Sites Engineering Manager at Rackspace Hosting. In this role, he leads the architects, engineers, and development efforts for the site's platform-as-a-service offering. Brett Pyatt is a technical alliance manager at Rackspace Hosting. In this role, he's the primary technical contact for partners of the Rackspace Cloud division. He is also actively involved in the cloud computing community, helping open source projects gain awareness and adoption. Welcome, guys. Hey there, Carl and Richard. Yeah, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, guys. So I'm really stoked to talk to you guys because most cloud discussions involve Azure or Amazon. Right. And uh, it's nice to see other folks are actually, you guys are becoming cloud providers. We are a cloud provider, and uh, we we think we're offering a uh, compelling message of trying to keep it simple because at the end of the day, developers just want to write code and run their applications, and um, having to relearn how to do everything over and over every 18 months while the technology people come up with newer, better, faster uh, can make their life more difficult instead of easier. Now, what you're doing here is your own protocols and your own system. You're not, are you leveraging, uh, well, you're obviously leveraging something. What, what uh, is it based on? Well, we've decided to take more of an open approach when it comes to cloud. Um, like Google, um, who have, has their App Engine product, we've decided to leverage uh, the .NET framework as it runs today in any other dedicated environment if you're running cloud servers Windows or the platform offering. So a lot of other cloud providers will give you frameworks, namespaces, and so forth that you'd have to use. But on our environment, you can uh, take your application from literally wherever it's running today and bring it onto our platform. So it's Windows-based, but it's not Azure-based? Correct. Correct. Interesting. So we have two approaches now. So if you're looking for more of a kind of an infrastructure offering where you just want kind of the raw horsepower, the raw computing, and you can configure it kind of from the ground up with administrative privileges, then we have cloud servers Windows. But if you're the type of developer who all you want to do is focus on deploying your applications, you don't want to have to worry about the system administration aspects, and kind of we have the other side of that, which is the cloud sites, which is more of a platform offering. You literally kind of just upload your application, and you don't have to worry about anything under the platform itself. Now, when you say you don't have to worry about anything, that's a kind of a loaded statement. What does that mean? What do you get for that? We t- 
typically with the Cloud Sites product, deploy it across hundreds of servers um, for you automatically. Your app doesn't need to be aware um, of how the platform function underneath it, and then we'll have, through load balancing, um, distribute that app across the number of nodes needed uh, in order for it to perform up to uh, reasonable. So then when it deploys at first, does it deploy on one server and then move to multiple servers as needed and expand and contract based on demand, or is it something that you have to... uh specify how much power gets used? All of that's transparent to the application um, developer. So they write their app just as they were writing it for a single server. And then through um, IP networking, we route the traffic around and distribute the app out across multiple application servers as needed. Um, So all kind of underneath the covers, behind the scenes, uh, to make it simple and easy and transparent because it's hard for a lot of folks to go from writing single-server applications to writing multi-server applications. And um, we know as more users adopt things, people have to start figuring those hurdles and obstacles out. And we wanted to try to make it um, easy for folks. As this kind of came from the, a core problem we saw in our managed hosting business that we started 12 years ago. Uh, customers would join us. They would start out on a, a single server, and then they would start to grow to two servers, and then they'd go to three servers mm-hmm. or maybe five servers from there. And as they grew, they got to the point where their developers started having a hard time handling the system interaction right. and managing all of that. So we started a research project uh, almost four years ago um, and started building this platform out to make it easy for people to do what they want to do, write their app, and let it serve their audience. Do you serve more uh, operating systems than Windows? Yes. So both on the Cloud Sites offering, we support Linux and PHP. Uh, and on the Cloud Servers offering, we support Linux and Windows. Okay. That's interesting. So let me run through a scenario for you then. You, you, we've got, I've got, I'm a guy, I've got an ASP.NET site and, uh, my server can't handle it anymore. So I want to be able to just move that app to you and you'll handle as many users as I need. Is that what you're trying to offer? Exactly. Yep. So you would take your application, log in either through our web-based control panel or via, uh, FTP or, and drop your application into your directory structure and, you can browse to your site after that, and you're up and running. Now, I happen to be a guy who scaled a whole bunch of sites like this, and I know there's some serious gotchas in there. So how do you guys cope with something like session state being bound to a given machine? So there's kind of two options there. For uh, most applications, we handle that at the load balancer level. So while requests from many users will be distributed between all the nodes and a given cluster, one single user will be sticky onto a single node for session purposes. Other developers who use our system um, have created their own session handling mechanisms um, where they can either persist them on the file system or uh, using a SQL database. Uh, but for most users, there's nothing that has to be done at that layer. It's all transparently handled by the load balancer. And then the other place where you see a choke point is around the database itself. Do you do you have some options for me to scale a database? So what we've done is we've built active-active MS SQL clusters. So obviously, relational databases have their own scaling needs and requirements. But what we've done is we've created an offering that uh, lets and allows for most database applications to uh run without modification at all. 
and you and you've already configured up all the the failover and so forth. This doesn't actually account for the fact that you really do need to write code to tolerate a failover. Like if something actually quits on you, you still have to code for that. Yeah, sure. you you still should be coding timeouts in your application, and right. you, your application should have a failback if I can't connect to the database. I should display something rather than waiting and timing out and hanging and giving the user a bad experience. There's right. a, a lot of things you should do when you're you're making a an application interactive uh that can help improve the user experience significantly. I mean, a fail page that just shows a please call us at this phone number right now. I'm sorry our web page isn't working is infinitely better for the user than getting a 404 page not found error or a 503 we're not going to talk to you today error. Right. 500 internal server error. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Please, uh, please wait. Yeah. Something's, something's <laughs> broken. Come back. We blame you. Yeah. Your fault. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the Web UI Test Studio for Silverlight UI testing. If you've already started developing with Silverlight, you'll soon need a solid testing tool for Silverlight UI. Unfortunately, there's no good way to simulate the actual behavior of end users unless you spend days and weeks doing manual testing. But things have changed. The guys at Telerik just introduced the first point-and-click UI testing tool for Silverlight. Web UI Test Studio. Check it out. You can quickly record tests with the cross-browser recorder and enrich them with code if you have more complex scenarios. On top of that, it supports standard controls and Telerik controls. You can verify not only Silverlight, but also complex AJAX applications. And the best part, Web UI Test Studio lives in Visual Studio, so you don't have to leave your favorite development environment. Check it out at Telerik.com slash web-testing-tools. And hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash Telerik. These are interesting scaling challenges because you get into... Uh you know, units of work where this query now that data set is that big takes too long. It's just a long time. And I, I can't see how you would actually get over that per se. Uh, I mean, we stood up very large database clusters. So for most folks applications, um, I mean, this is not going to, if the library of Congress wanted to do a one second lookup, uh, every, for to count the number of the times the word the is used in all of their books, not going to happen on the cluster, but right. these are large database clusters that should handle performance for most uh, users' applications. And then what we also do is work with folks who, through our monitoring on the system, we'll see that maybe some application, when a page loads, is hitting the database with a 100 separate queries. We may go talk to the application developer there to see if they can do things to normalize their data tables, to streamline the queries for that page load so that it's not putting as much strain on the database. A lot of people, as they're writing applications, they don't necessarily uh, realize which points um, are going to cause contention in the application architecture or which things are expensive to scale. Because we can give people bigger, larger, faster databases. It just starts to cost a lot more money. And that's where refactoring their code may save them money over paying for additional hardware to have a larger and larger database. Right. And and in this in these cloud offerings, the whole point here is that I'm not paying for a server per se. I'm paying by usage. Correct. And and how does that usage break down? It, so it'll break down in the the cloud servers offerings per hour of server usage that you allocate, uh, and then the 
cloud sites model, um, we've created our own work units called Compute Cycles, uh, very similar to what Google's done with App Engine, and there those compute cycles get churned. So if your database is having to run long queries constantly to load your main web page on your site, um, looking at ways to um, cache that content to um, load your information into a more concise table instead of having to pull across multiple tables every time that page loads can actually end up saving you money at the end of the day. Right. Well, and it's interesting to be able to do that cost comparison of op- the amount of wages I have to pay to optimize versus the costs over the year for processing loads. And indeed, for most users, I think it makes sense to consider this type of model. You know, most applications have fairly elastic demand. Um, if you're an e-commerce site during the Christmas season, then you're going to need a lot more computing resources during that time of the year. Yeah. And with an offering like cloud sites or servers, you can kind of scale up dynamically and not have to worry about the CapEx for actually getting dedicated gear online. So for those types of businesses, it makes a lot of sense to consider this type of model for some of their applications. Can you anticipate the load? Can you say, on this date, I know I'm going to start having a higher load, so scale up beforehand? Or does it is there a period of a, a short period of slow unresponsiveness before it scales? So it depends on which direction you go. If you go the platform route with cloud sites, then the platform automatically is going to scale with you. You're just going to incur more compute cycles, so your bill will you know, scale accordingly. But I guess what I'm on, getting at, there's no, there's no lag? No, no. It's all dynamic and in real time. The thing about cloud servers is those are actually dedicated instances. So you have a lot more control. You have a lot more control of the instance, what's going on on the resource itself. But you do have to manage those scaling issues. So if you need to add additional servers then you have to do that yourself or programmatically do it, which is what many of our customers do. Now, how do you programmatically do it? So our our cloud offers um, API interfaces to um, create new server instances, to back up those instances, clone them, um, delete them when you don't need them any longer. So you can add modules into your software or use um, any number of our um, systems management partner tools to go through and handle that uh, programmatic access for you. So programmatically, I can spin up an instance, I can shut down an instance, I mean, all that good stuff. Now, the real question is, how do I answer, when do I need to do this? Like, how do I instrument the the web app to say, hey, we're running too slow now? So that's where you, you would tie your systems management and your monitoring together. So um, if you have a synthetic transaction that you run against your website, and let's say that three seconds is acceptable for this transaction flow, uh, as soon as you start to see it creep up near the three-second number, you can start launching that new server. Because while this is dynamic provisioning, it's not instantaneous provisioning. So bringing a server online still can take a matter of a few minutes. And if you receive a very short but very large traffic spike, you're better off uh, front-ending your environment at least uh, on something like cloud sites where you will truly have that dynamic scaling. In the cloud servers world, you're still going to need to ramp that scaling up over time. And maybe we need to clarify here because you, I mean, if you're talking about cloud right. servers and cloud sites and how many different products are there here? 
So there's there's two different offerings. There's the platform as a service, which is the cloud sites offering, where you take your application, drop the code in, and it dynamically scales across hundreds of servers. Right. And then there's cloud servers, where it, instead of having to take days or weeks to order new servers, set them up, get them installed, get IP addresses and OS and all those things put on it, you can press a button in our control panel or through a call to our API, launch a new server in a matter of minutes. And then you're responsible for distributing your app across those servers and managing them just as you would today in a in, in your own environment. And then I also see here this cloud files. Cloud files is uh, kind of a raw storage product. If you have files that you would like to store um on the web, you can use Cloud Files. It's fully API enabled, and it's also CDN enabled. We've partnered with Limelight to offer CDN. So if there is multimedia images, anything that you want kind of globally distributed via right. CDN, you can enable that on the container itself. And you and you pay by the byte for that, transmitted or stored, or both. So you pay for both. You pay for what's stored and the transfer as well. Okay. But so this, this, it is effectively, it's like a combination of S3 and Akamai like, or Limelight. It's a, it's a CDN, but also a storage tool. So the, probably the best uh, comparison would be S3 with CloudFront. Okay. Yeah, so this is uh, one of the things, as Josh said when we started off today, we're trying to really follow standards that are out there, and we're also trying to partner with uh, best-of-breed technologies that are out there. So there's kind of this balance of options of try to build everything yourself and have an offering in the game and collect and keep all the money for yourself or go out and find people that wake up every morning thinking about CDN and go to bed every night thinking about CDN like the folks at Limelight and then integrating them into into our offering so that we can focus on providing a wonderful infrastructure for folks to run applications on and then tie that into someone that, that cares as much as we do about infrastructure, they care about CDN. All right. Well, in this is good because you know these are all different parts of the whole equation. It just seems like these are these are similar offerings to other folks, but they're they're a little more. Well, you're using op- existing APIs. It seems like I could adapt what I've already got to this fairly easily. That's the approach we've certainly taken. Um, we um, with Amazon. If you're looking like EC2, mm-hmm. we've taken a different approach. With EC2, your instances are transient. So if uh, the host machine, for instance, were to go down, then you would lose your instance and all the data with it. Most application developers um, really just haven't, their applications aren't mature enough yet to deal with that. So that requires them to invest a little bit more to handle those particular instances. With us, the, ho- the instances that runs on the host is, uh, is permanent. So if the host were to go down, we will recover the host and the instance will be recovered. Um, so that kind of gives the developer a bit of an easier uh, adoption mechanism and allows them to kind of adopt cloud technologies a lot faster than they would if they were to look at an Amazon product. One question I have is that, uh, you know, going back to this, you know, everything just works dynamically thing. When you, uh, let's say that, you, let's say you have a voting system, right? So you've got something that's going to be pretty much dormant most of the time. And then on a certain day when, when everybody's going to vote for something, I don't know, a lot of people hit all at once. Let's say, you know, it's American Idol, right? You're going to vote for your favorite contestant. 
So it's going to go from zero load to a heavy load. Are you going to distribute in a, ahead of time all the, of the code to all these different servers and the databases and all that stuff so that when the demand is there, those it's essentially like flipping a bit? Or when the demand is there, is that when you copy and deploy and move things around behind the scenes? Good question. So the code is actually stored on a network storage system. So the code is available to any of the nodes in our web cluster. So based on demand, the code's already there and can be launched and run in memory instantly. So there's no uh, concern about kind of deployment time, distribution time, since everything is stored on a network file system. Well, and the network file system is shared across the world, across all of your across data cluster. centers? Across the cluster. So, I mean, you're still dependent on that given cluster. I guess the, the challenge here is always what is the level of fault tolerance like do you lose a data center how many data centers do you guys have brett i'll let you take that so globally across all of our businesses we have nine data centers in operation today uh the rackspace cloud offerings are in two of our data centers today and expanding to a third data center here uh in 2010 with some potential expansion to uh, Europe and Asia as well. Uh, the cloud products for us, uh, we started the platform offering about four years ago, and the cloud files and cloud servers offerings now are uh, just around a year old. So as we ramp those up and grow demand, we're adding them uh, into more data centers. Uh, we're merging into uh, what some of our customers are really starting to try out this year, uh, hybrid hosting configurations where they tie uh, resources they need to have online all the time, or they have um, different configuration or security requirements for into a managed configuration inside the same data center with cloud resources for that variable or peak demand. All right. And and can I take, I've been looking at the cloud servers off of you thinking, can I, if I have a virtual machine, say in Hyper-V, can I migrate it to you? So... There's no migration at the infrastructure level where you would take that virtual machine and copy the full virtual machine over. You would need to use some uh, OS-to-OS level replication. Uh, that There are a number of utilities out there. Uh, one of the ones we offer in our managed hosting product base is uh, based on uh, technology from a company called DoubleTake. So there's a number of solutions out there to to go through and import your image. Uh, we're looking at supporting um, various image formats for clouds as the standards evolve. We've been actively um, talking with the DMTF and participating in the open virtualization format discussion. So uh, as some standards evolve around that and we can pick something to uh, send the development team towards, uh, we're going to go ahead and, and look at that. So, yeah, and of course, my IT hat goes on here. And I'm thinking about uh, the idea of um, using the cloud offering as the disaster recovery site. I'll run my infrastructure and basically keep a backup up there. So if something goes drastically wrong with my data center, I can fail over to yours. So, yes, absolutely. So there's um, a number of ways that that you can enable that um, through tools you, you built and deploy yourself or through our, our partner products and things we're building out in our ecosystem. So uh, as I said, with the integration into the product offering uh, of Limelight with our cloud file solution for a CDN, we've also launched uh, a, a cloud tools community that we 
feature on our website that our partner technologies that we've sent uh, developers and integration folks through to vet and to ensure that they're out there solving problems um, directly for our customers. So we have uh, for Windows users here in this audience, uh, there's a number of backup and replication solutions that can take that data out of your uh, environment, your SharePoint, uh, your Exchange, store that data up in our cloud, and then if you needed to recover and bring that up online, uh, you would be able to uh, launch a cloud server, install the uh, recovery application, and then the stream that data back out of cloud files onto the live and new running server for you. Hmm. Yeah, it's cl- it's clever yeah. stuff. It's interesting to look at that uh, cloud as the DR solution, or as the the trickier thing would be to actually split the load. Where my infrastructure is starting to fail under the amount of load, can I spin up some uh, some cloud servers to offload some of that work? And the, the spinning up of the the cloud to offload is something that's. Uh, a little bit uh, more complicated, but we're working on solutions uh, as well to help that. One of the projects that we have uh, in a uh, pilot with some of our customers today is we're calling CloudBridge that allows you to have the same uh, private network segment in a managed and cloud configuration or inside of your own data center extended out to a cloud. So as long as you needed compute capacity and, and memory and you weren't super latency sensitive, you could add additional application servers in the cloud that tie back to a, a database inside of your own uh, infrastructure. Yeah, it still sounds like an architectural challenge because you know, you mentioned it, latency hits. But just organizing the workload so that they would make sense in those different places. Yeah, and then that's one thing that is, um, the cloud evolves, and it's a, a very new market right now. I mean, Amazon got into this publicly uh, just a few years back, and uh, as we grow and we mature the cloud software stacks and platforms across the industry, um, the bandwidth providers and those uh, super talented electrical and computer engineers there are going to uh, keep pushing it to where we get as close to the speed of light as possible um, and up to unlimited bandwidth. I mean, they're talking now with the new 4G wireless cellular, we're going to have 10... 10 megabit connections to our cell phones. Mm. Um, I mean, I still remember having a 300-baud modem on my computer and thinking it was really <laughs> cool to not have to put something on a floppy disk and mail it to a friend. Acoustic couplers, man, they were the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Did uh, I hear you correctly? You say your office is in a shopping mall? Yeah, I got to hear this story. So, yes, absolutely. So, uh, Rackspace is based in San Antonio with Texas, which is uh, the middle of nowhere for most tech companies, but we've um, sort of enjoyed this quiet seclusion. It keeps us grounded in, in a way that I think if you get into some of the more hotbed communities that um, it, it doesn't keep you focused on the end of the day, the things that really matter, which is um, finding out what your customers' needs are and delivering those. So. Mm. With that in San Antonio, um, we've hired and really built a a large organization and company here. So we started off in what used to be the um, headquarters of the old DataPoint Corporation that sold the x86 chip to Intel. Whoops. Um, Whoops. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so we've outgrew that building uh, a little bit over a year ago, and... um, 
while we were looking around in town on where can we go that's bigger, uh, we, we got to the point where we needed to evaluate starting from scratch, picking a site and building our own location. Or over um, on the east side of town, there was a, a mall that had been abandoned for five or six years, and we talked to the city and uh, of Windcrest, which is a little suburb tied into San Antonio, about what if we turned that mall into an office building? And they, they thought it sounded wonderful, so we worked with the city of Windcrest and the state of Texas to um, take over and occupy a mall. And in about uh, a year ago now, uh, we moved into our first um, 200,000 square foot phase, which uh, used to be a Mervyn's office location. We've now since um, <laughs> expanded out um, into the second phase here with a little bit over 1,000 employees in this building now uh, and into about 300,000 square feet out of the 1.2 million square feet of the full mall. So hopefully over time, the uh, cloud becomes the choice for everyone's computing. And uh, we managed to fill this entire shopping mall up with uh, around 5,000 employees. So for lunch, do you take the escalator down to the food court? Yes. So and that's, to, that's the, the ultimate plan. So Sabaro uh, yeah. and all that. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. So we'll... Uh, we happen to be the only office in town with an escalator inside, and the reason being is that the uh, escalators were left behind when they closed the mall down, and you would have to break a hole in the ceiling, essentially, to take these things apart and pull them out of the building. So wow. uh, it was better to uh, bring in some mechanics in and, and have them fix up the escalators that hadn't been running for 10 years than it would have been to uh, try to remove them. That's awesome. <laughs> wow, yeah, and lots of space. Are you actually putting data centers in there or just offices? So so it, this whole campus is going to turn out to be just offices. Uh, we'd gone through and looked at, at all those things we do, kind of comprehensive assessment when we evaluate that. And right now the plan is office. And you think the shopping mall, wow, there's a lot of parking spots around that shopping mall. Mm. Um, interestingly enough, when you start to fill a shopping mall full of desks and people and not furniture and clothes and toy stores and all the rest of that, it, it turns out that there's just about the right number of parking spaces in the lot to fill it full of people. So there's around 6,000 or so spaces uh, in, in the parking lot today, and we'll have about 5,000 employees in the building, and that gives you a little flux for visitor parking and everything else that you, you need around the facility. That's crazy. Hilarious. Huh? So .NET, we can run WCF, I take it? And we, yes. Yeah. And anything that runs on Windows Server, we can put up there. Are there any restrictions? So the one kind of caveat about the platform offering is it is a managed offering. So you can't throw anything on the servers that you want. You have to be able to include the namespace and any extensions with your application itself. So anything that would require kind of like administrative level access to install, any sort of unmanaged DLLs, anything like that that's not part of the core .NET framework, the Entity Framework, or any of the other kind of Microsoft extensions have to um, cannot be installed on the Cloud Sites offering. So if you have to have really strict control over your environment, um, then what you have to do is really go with the kind of the Cloud Server's offering so you can install all of those things. Because you can do anything you want in cloud servers. You're basically owning the instance at that point. Yes. And for many, for many of our users, that's kind of a defining choice that they have to make when deploying their application. Hmm. 
Yeah, because I'm just trying to think of how what what would it take to migrate a cloud sites site over to a cloud servers site. For most users, that's that's the easy direction to go. If you're on the cloud server side and you are and you need kind of that strict control of your environment, then maybe moving to cloud sites is not the right option for you. Right. But if you have something in cloud sites, it can move to cloud servers without a problem at all. And that's probably going to be, depending on your application, that may be a very natural step for you to do as your applications evolve and need more control of the environment. Okay. Um, do we talk about, I mean, you talk about how things were priced, but we do we talk numbers? Um, no, so... The cloud server's windows starts off at uh, $0.02 cents an hour for a 512 meg of RAM uh, Windows Server 2003 or 2008 uh, Enterprise Edition. And then that scales up. As you add more memory, your, your costs will go up from there uh, on the hourly charge. And then cloud sites starts at $149 a month. And that includes uh, a pile of compute units and storage. And uh, to add your Microsoft SQL database access, it's $10 a month. And if I'm wrong, we'll dub over this and Josh will tell me the right number. (laughs) (laughs) Or not. not. I think that's right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Seems reasonable. And it's, it's right in the ballpark with everything else that's out there. And the other thing that kind of makes these offerings unique is we include support. So... A lot of times as users are jumping on the platform, they have a lot of questions. So Rackspace embraced what we call fanatical support, um, and we've adopted that same or very similar model here in the cloud. So when we call with a problem, we're going to get a fanatic on the other end? You will. You will. So it's not going to be the same level of service, right, if you had a dedicated offering. But our support team is here to help you really get started and to really take advantage of the technology that we have. And if if there's something that uh, they know about that they can recommend, any other solution, framework, I mean, a lot of these guys are developers, um, kind of coders. I mean, they, they're very interested and dedicated to making the customer happy. So you never know what um, type of advice you're going to get. Um, they're really great at helping the customer out and go above and beyond to make sure the customer's satisfied. Okay. Is there any special uh, hidden link on Rackspace.com that we want to look at to get to this information? So our, our phone number is up on the website, uh, clearly displayed. I mean, this is one of the things is technology keeps making things easier to do, but as you take one layer out and make that layer easier, there's always the layer above it where people are still going to have questions. And um, as much as we've tried to um, the HAL 9000 and whatnot approach, mm. um, having a conversation with people seems to help folks uh, on a fairly regular basis. It's one of the things we really kind of built our whole business around. I mean, there's the concept of dedicated hosting out there where you, you get a server and you're responsible for it yourself. Mm-hmm. And and then what we've really focused on and pioneered about 12 years ago, we found out people want help with that server in, in a lot of cases. And we started managed hosting where there's somebody there for you to talk to that can answer your questions, that can can help you with the things you don't know. And as a service provider, we have uh, over 20,000 customers in our managed hosting business and over 50,000 customers on our cloud. So um, this is where, as a developer or a small business, you feel like you're out there on your own and every problem's yours and it's unique to you and that you, you don't really know where to look for help. Well, we have a huge pool of people that 
may be trying to do something similar to you. I, I might be trying to start a shoe store, and Josh might be trying to start a T-shirt store, and we're both trying to use the same shopping cart software, and we could struggle along separately or with Rackspace. This may be the, the 10,000th customer okay. that's tried to use that shopping cart, and you can hop into a, into a chat, pick up a phone, and call one of our folks, and they might say, be able to tell you, do X, Y, and Z, or go look at this wiki article that we've published out right. here for you to help you guys get that up and online and running. All right, sounds good. Uh, thank you, guys. It sounds uh, like an interesting offering, and it's always good to see what's going on out in the big, wide world of the cloud. Absolutely. All right, and we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.